So yeah, hi everyone. This is Michael Cox for the Finding Sustainability podcast. I'm here with Irene Perez Ibarra. I think I got that right. Yes. <laughs> he was currently a researcher at the Agri-Food uh, Institute of Aragon at the University of Zaragoza. Um, before moving back to Spain, I understand that you were a postdoc at ASU and spent some time doing some research in Columbia University in New York City, all of which was after getting a PhD at the University of Murcia. Are you from Murcia? That's in southern Spain, right? Yeah, I'm from Murcia. This is in the southeast of, uh, of Spain. And now okay. I'm in Zaragoza, which is in the northeast uh, of Spain. Okay. So how does that feel? Is there like a cultural shift there? I mean, maybe not beyond like what you experienced in New York and Arizona, but... Well, I think even the distances in Spain compared to the distances in the U.S. are smaller here. But the cultural thing is also different. You can feel the same as in the U.S. You can feel that the people from the south are different from the people of the north, even though we speak the uh, or most of us speak the same language or have the same roots. I mean, I remember I spent like that a month in Granada, my first time in Spain for, for any period of time. And I remember like a, a new Spanish friend of mine answered her phone with um, just saying, Kine? Like, what is that? Like, I've been studying Spanish for like two years now. I have no idea what you just said. It was like, Kines. Yeah. Like, okay. Well, that's this is why people don't understand like native speakers sometimes because it's like, yeah. like there's like yeah. Malmel, that are like Maso Menos. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, goodness. Yes, the accent, yeah, the accent is so different from the south and the north, and also the way of life is different. Or people, people here in the north are like more direct, asking you questions, while in the south, you know, you are more relaxed and talking slower, or things like that. But I think in the U.S. it's quite similar. Yeah, I mean, certainly some of those like stere- like stereotypes or reputations hold that like people in the Northeast and the cities are like very blunt and direct. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. No, yeah. I remember at Columbia, there was a master's student. She was from Seattle. And she was saying, well, people here in New York, they're always trying to finish my sentences because I talk slower <laughs> <laughs> compared to here in the city that everybody is running. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you did a PhD at the University of Murcia. Can you, do you mind just even telling us, you know, what led you to getting a PhD? I feel like there's a lot, there's, there's many different answers to this question. Mm-hmm. So I think even when I was still finishing my my graduate or undergraduate student uh, studies, I mm-hmm. started to collaborate in a department in a, in the ecology department of University of Murcia. So okay. that was my first contact with uh, science and uh, researchers, and I remember like starting to do some little works there and uh, talking to one researcher and he's a professor now in one university, Miguel Hernandez University in Spain. He, I remember um, talking to him and he was explaining me what science is, like the mm-hmm. importance of communicating, asking questions, uh, communicating your, your results. So I guess that I, I like science because... I, re- I remember all these uh, conversations with uh, now friends and, and colleagues, but before yeah. they were my uh, supervisors. And, um, and o- I also remember like going to a, it was a small conference in Murcia. And uh, I remember a 
professor that came and he started to talk about the the human conflicts between wolf conservations and human, how uh, livestock farmers didn't like wolves and and all that conflicts. And that really, that topic really, really liked me. And that's when okay. I decided to do a PhD um, about what what I now call social ecological system. So my PhD was about the uh, social dimension of biodiversity conservation. And I focus with a case study is the um, terrestrial tortoises. So people in the north of Africa, in the south, uh, south of Spain, where there are tortoises, people collect them to keep them uh, at home as uh, mm -hmm. pets. This is an illegal activity, so tortoises are protected by the Spanish law, the European law, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, so what I was studying, why are people collecting tortoises if it's, it's, it's a wild animal? And right. how can we change like the mental, the mental model that people have of tortoises as pets, moving that mental model to a model of uh, tortoises as wild animals that need mm -hmm. to be conserved in, the, in their natural habitat. Okay. Um, so that was the topic of my uh, PhD. And, and I think the important uh, of this PhD was like, it was my first, it was the first time that I started to do interdisciplinary research. I have in my PhD, I have one supervisor was an ecologist and the other one was a sociologist. So I had to learn both uh, disciplines okay. and being able to apply methodologies in ecology and methodologies in social sciences to study a conservation problem. Okay. So, okay. So my next question is, what do you think we mean by interdisciplinary? Because I feel like you know, it's one of these concepts that, ha that you know, the, the definition for many people is like a, a you know definition. So someone asks you and your answer is, well, you know, interdisciplinarity. But when I try to think about what it actually means, I, I start to struggle actually pretty quickly. It's like, well, I, I'm, I'm learning some of this and I'm learning some of that. But what is it? How do these is it actually having disciplines talk to each other? You already mentioned social ecological systems. So a lot of us are talking about how do we is that is that a new science? Is that just like a. Uh, a way of having existing sciences talk to each other? Like, how do you view all that? Yeah, I am always struggling about what is it? Is this uh, multidisciplinary? Is it transdisciplinary or is, or right. is it interdisciplinary? Right. Um, and, and I think it's it's difficult to uh, to answer because probably it's a little bit of everything. Mm. Um, I think when I mean interdisciplinary, um, sometimes I use transdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. it, it depends. But what I mean is like trying to solve a problems with tools from these different disciplines, tools, languages, and the, uh, okay. the way the different disciplines are able to to understand or create a common understanding of a of a of a problem. Okay, and that's in your current position, you'd say. I, I okay. think so. I think okay. so. I'm trying uh, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I, it's the is is the way to resolve current problems. So if you want to solve problem related with a global crisis, climate change, biodiversity mm -hmm. loss, et cetera, et cetera, I think it's obvious that you cannot use only one focus. You need to integrate the focus sure. of, many, of many people. We are talking about nature, but we are 
also talking about human well-beings, our traditional communities, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so to me, I never used the word transdisciplinarity until last summer when a friend of mine, who shall go unnamed, used it constantly. And, and it just kind of like seeped into my brain. And I became convinced, actually, this is like a really great word. Um, and my understanding of it includes this idea that it's not just like more interdisciplinarity, but it's this idea that you're having academics work with non-academic actors and maybe also incorporating non-academic values into your research. You know, there's a lot of key words there. Is that how you understand it, too, or is it? Yeah, yes, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I never thought about transdisciplinary as uh, uh, including the local stakeholders. Um, Okay. Because I was thinking about the academic, but of course, it it makes sense. Okay. Okay. So you were in Murcia, and you were thinking, okay, this is a hot, this is a hot place. So this is other hot place called Arizona. Yeah. Um, at Arizona State University, where you and I, of course, know a bunch of people. There's a lot of people at ASU involved in social ecological systems, sustainability writ large. Can you talk to us about your time there uh, as a postdoc and how that felt as like the next step for you? Yeah, so um, I think for scientists, it's important to move, to go to different uh, institutions. And I think Mm -hmm. when I finished my PhD during my uh, four years or no, I would say six years of PhD. I didn't, and I was working while doing my PhD. Right. So it took me a long time. So when I finished it, I was eager to go to places and um, uh, meet other researchers and do uh, respond to other research questions. So right. um, at that time, I got interested about uh, common pool resources and. Um, and irrigation systems and AM-based modeling. Um, so that's mm-hmm. why I start uh, searching for uh, researchers uh, doing those kind of things. And okay. of course, uh, the first name that came out was uh, Marco Janssen. Oh, that guy. Yeah. That guy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that you know him. <laughs> uh-huh. So I wrote him, telling him that I was interested in going there. So I applied to different calls in Spain, and I got one. And then uh, went there initially for a couple of years. So I think to me, it was... It was a great experience going to ASU and uh, uh, working with Marco Janssen, Marty Andres, Jacopo, Mike Skumon. Yeah, those folks. All those. To me, it was a great personal experience. I learned so much. Can you talk to me about like the projects and how, I assume you moved on to like new projects yeah. having less to do with tortoises, et cetera, maybe. Yes. Yeah, and so, I'm always interested in hearing about like Asian-based modeling because I took like a net logo course for a week like 10 years ago and like kind of fell in love with it. But then it's like, okay, this is like really cool video game. But how do you do science with it? I think that's for folks who haven't done it. I think that's a common response. So I'd love to just hear about your yeah. experiences with it. How is how does it engage with your science? Yes. So at that time, the project that I had, it was about irrigation systems in, Mm -hmm. uh, and I had one case study in uh, Murcia. It was uh, farmers using uh, water from springs to, uh, for irrigation. And they were having some issues uh, because agro pharmacy, agro 
industries were coming mm -hmm. and getting all the all the groundwater. And then another case study in uh, Baja California about an o oasis that was traditionally used for as well for for traditional irrigation. Okay. So um, I went to Arizona to develop an agent-based model to understand uh, the resilience of the system and especially resilient to uh, to climate change. Okay. Um, that was the initial idea, but then after two years there, I ended up um, creating a model about how uh, mobility, uh, agents' mobility affects the uh, the sustainability of uh, of small scale uh, systems. It was a theoretical agent-based model. So the agents think, are people here moving around. Yeah, it, it's it's a nice uh, model. You can okay. uh, you can imagine a grid that mm -hmm. is a landscape with different patches. Each patch represents a resource. Got it. And the resource you can agents um, and then agents that move around the, the landscape. They use the resources. The resources uh, uh, they can grow or the agents reproduce and move, decide where to move. They can also copy other agents and, and okay. th things like that. Okay. And the conclusion of that model was that yeah, of course. Mobility affects how agents move, but also depends on how the landscape is is distributed or how far agents can uh, can move. So I did that model, but also uh, in collaboration with Marco and uh, Marty Anderis, we also do an agent-based model about an irrigation system in, in Nepal. And the idea what that it was a the replication of a computational model that uh, Mert Marty Andres already did in collaboration with another, with one of his uh, students some time ago. So I replicated the, um, uh, the model in NetLogo okay. and then see how robust, robust was the system to different scenarios of uh, climate change. And this is a beautiful model. And one of the main conclusion um, a climate change is going to or might uh, produce some coordination problems in a small yeah. scale social ecological system. So okay. if you imagine that with climate change, we will have more intense raining and then the irrigation infrastructure are going to be more, are going to be affected for an intense uh, rainfall. So then the needs of farmers meeting to solve problems, the, the mm -hmm. need of farmers to work more or pay more money to repair all these uh, irrigation infrastructures is going is gonna, is gonna to grow. Okay. So is there, are there projects like this one where you have both like agent-based modeling and field work? Is that something that happens? Yeah, well, I think it's not that uh, it's not that common, but this is something okay. that I uh, do also okay. with other colleagues from uh, Miguel Hernandez uh, University. So what we do is that we go to um, to the field to work with to talk with farmers or talk to yeah with farmers in livestock systems, and then we from there we get the rules how they how they organize and how they make decision to use the uh, the natural resources. 
Right, okay. Um, and we also get information of how uh, the system is organized, how many farmers there are, how do they communicate, or, or, or things like that. Okay. And then with that information, we implement that in a system dynamic model or in an AM based model. Okay. And you called the model beautiful. Oh, yes. <laughs> what makes a model beautiful? Well, I think modeling, I guess, is kind of an art. Uh, mm -hmm. So you can make a model that is, there are no like agents that you can see or that they can move, but it can right. produce interesting results. But you can uh -huh. also have a model that uh, you, you, can, you can see the process and you can understand as the okay. model is running, you can understand what is uh, what is happening. Okay. And is that, um, sorry, go ahead. Is that something that's unique to like NetLogo in that environment and agent-based models? Is that you can kind of watch processes unfold more? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, I think so. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Especially because NetLogo, I mean, it's easy to use. It's a free software. Right. The language is easy. So even if you want to see uh, models, you, you can watch it. You don't need to do know the language or anything. Right. You can right. see them. Yeah, is this relating to the OpenABM project, which I think Marco has also been heavily involved in? Mm -hmm. um, I think people would be interested in that as like a, a, a way of establishing both scientific standards, but also sharing, you know, sharing the commons essentially. Yes. Yeah, and I think this is a, a great thing, like having OpenABM or Comces, as they are calling it now. Yeah, it's just uh, putting people together that are doing agent-based modeling and having a model library where you can share uh, the code of your um, of your model. Okay. And it makes everything more transparent because you are publishing a paper, uh, but you are saying, okay, you can hear, you can uh, see the code of my. Right. Uh, of my model and then other uh, researchers or students can download the model and replicate uh, your results. Or even right. they can um, start a new model, um, create a new model uh, starting with your um, with your code, using okay. your code as their starting point. Yeah, I mean, it sounds terrific. I, I mean, I kind of feel like other branches, other aspects of I mean, certainly commons research, social ecological systems could benefit from resources like that, right? I feel like we all kind of under leverage the knowledge that we have in academia because we're all kind of these different islands. You know, there's all, like whenever someone like writes a questionnaire to interview farmers, what have you, they tend to kind of reinvent the wheel at least a little bit because there's no repository of like environmental social science questionnaires. And exactly. you're not required to include a questionnaire as a part of your protocol when you submit a paper, the way I think at least some journals, right? Like there's this idea, like, is it ecology and society where now they're moving to? If like, if you have an, an agent-based model, you're like, you have to submit the code, et cetera, which yes. I can't see an argument against that. Yeah. It's, it increases transparency, which is supposed to be something we want to do in science so yeah. that we can reproduce things. And it's also, we're sharing more. So it's like, okay, this is all sounds great. Yes. And okay. I think for, because you can see codes of modeling or maybe some paper. Now you can see the, the surveys, but for example, for qualitative data, I think it's even more difficult to find like the raw data that people are using or the, or the interview guide that they used. Yeah. 
I mean, it's yeah. I mean, qualitative research has this ability to get a com- complexity, and this has been documented in this interdisciplinary book that's coming out from some colleagues that I know at, at Stellenbosch and other places that. You know, one of the actual advantages of qualitative research is that it's able to kind of unpack nuance and complexity of a particular place. And that's that's really it actually can do it better than or at least it's not worse than like a lot of quantitative methods. But then the challenge for the qualitative work is like how do how can we systematically unpack complexity? How can we do it in a way that also generates comparable data or cases? Um, okay, so you worked with Marco, you worked with Marty a bit. Did you have projects? You mentioned Mike Schoon. Did you engage with him? I mean, because I know Jacopo does like agent-based modeling, is but Mike is more of a, a straight shooter commons guy. I can't wait for him to hear that description of him. <laughs> yeah, well, with Mike Schoon, we collaborate in the with the SESMAT project. Um, oh yes, oh that thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that thing. Yeah. <laughs> so we were coding one of the one case. Yeah, the social ecological systems meta-analysis database, which I want to blame Franklin von Lerhoven for that name. I I don't remember how but like we came up with that. I mean, it's not the acronym's nice. Um, I think the acronym is nice. Yeah, I like yeah. it. <laughs> it's kind of like Kentucky Fried Chicken, though, right? Like no one says that because it's bad for you, so we just say KFC. <laughs> yes. So we're like the KFC of science, maybe, or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you you were at you were at ASU for four years total, was it? Yeah, it was uh, from 2010 to 2014. Um, okay. That December, me, my family moved uh, to New York City because of right. uh, my husband, which he's also a scientist. Um, he got an um, assistant professor uh, position at City University of New York. Very and I think you had a child by then, right? Yeah, so um, I had now to, during those years in uh, Arizona, in 2011, my first son born. Um, It was tough. It wasn't uh, Mm. easy. And then when we moved to New York, I was eight months pregnant and my my daughter was born uh, two months uh, later when we moved uh, to New York. Two months after, like, moving across the country. Yes. People at Arizona, they were... uh, like Americans were saying, are you sure you, you want to do this <laughs> pregnant? And we were like, yeah, why not? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> we, I guess that we were very naive. It was, it was very tough. Sure. It <laughs> sounds hectic. I mean, moving is just like the worst, right? There's no one who's, who likes moving. Yeah. Let alone to, I mean, it's just like such a different context. You and I talked a little bit about this, how things just felt different in New York too. I think I remember you saying that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, last time you and I talked, we we talked about this transition and what the challenges involved were for you of navigating, you know, now having kids and moving and all that. And we've talked a bit on this podcast before about, you know, the challenges of academia. And I don't think they're I don't think a lot of the challenges in academia are unique to it. You know, I actually think people tend to assume that their own lives at multiple levels are kind of more unique than they are. But that said, you know, within academia, there certainly is, uh, I think a lot of the pressure is front loaded, where you kind of have to work really hard to kind of make it, quote unquote. And so I think there's also this conversation about how that disproportionately poses challenges for young parents, young mothers who are trying to do all that, have like this be the most intense period of their life personally and professionally. I mean, I'm interested in whether you even like if if you agree with that phrasing of it, like, do you think that there is like this front loading of the work professionally 
And then, you know, I don't have my own kids, but I've been around enough one and two and three year olds to know that they're naughty. <laughs> they can be unreasonable. Right. So how how did yeah. that all go for you? Did it feel like there was this front loading that, that made things particularly difficult? And and also maybe were there things that helped you? Mm hmm. I think to me, I knew that I wanted to form a family and I wanted to have kids mm -hmm. and uh, and I had the age to have it. I couldn't wait uh, right. more years. Right. I was in my postdoc uh, years and my biological clock was uh, running. But at the same time, I knew it was my second year in, at Arizona. I knew that it was the year that I needed to publish all my work and I needed to meet with yeah. colleagues, start new projects, start getting writing. out there, putting yourself out there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I decided to 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 have a kid. And I think um, I think like uh, being I, I've never been I've I've never been a person that was uh, that like kids or babies <laughs> or things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I don't remember having a conversation with any of my friends or my mom, like about what is having a baby or what babies do. I, right. Never. So I guess that way, what um, I, I guess that that saved me. That's why I have a kid. And I was so naive. Right. I thought. Well, I can handle this. I can have a kid. Uh, I remember um, my husband and I, when I, I was at the hospital ready to get birth, you see, like that. Yeah, uh, have the baby. Or what, have, yeah. the, have the baby. Uh, and we were thinking, well, maybe we can bring the iPads and uh, watch a movie or maybe, you know, read Chill the out. newspaper. Yeah, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have, you have a baby and then that's it. 24 hours a day, that's what you that's what you do. And I I don't know, I remember like thinking, why nobody told me that this is like this that you are not going to be able to like having a shower uh, or having a shower uh, in the morning that will that will be amazing if you are able to do it. Yeah, I, I didn't know. So I thought I would have more more time, but um uh, but no, no. Yeah. The, the months that I was with my first uh, son, the months that I was on maternity leave, I couldn't work at all. Like, yeah. sending an email was was almost almost impossible. And yeah, I know yeah. that other moms are able to do that, but I I wasn't. And then also I'm a person that I, when I with my kid, I like to have quality time with my kids. So when mm. I'm with them, I'm with them. Right. So I don't like being with them, with my cell phone, uh, checking my email, responding to right. email or, or th things like that. So I mean, that sounds really great. Yes. So it's yeah. also one thing that uh, you learn when, when you have kids, like you learn to organize your, uh, your time because sure. your time at the work is very limited. So I work my hours and then the rest of the time is my my family time. Okay. I mean, and it's, it's still that way. Have, I mean, what? if you have, uh, yes, yes, I try okay. to. But of course, if you have a deadline, there are periods of the year that you cannot right. do it. But, uh, right. but I really try very, yeah, very hard to, to, to do it like that. And my husband yeah, yeah. is the same. Okay. 
Yeah, I've heard from a lot of parents that one of the they say kind of the same thing you're saying is that the the main thing they realize is that you like don't get a break. Any given 10 minutes is like kind of doable, even if the kid's like freaking out. But the fact is that these 10 minutes are followed by another 10 minutes and another 10 minutes and another 10 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, as an I'm, I'm an uncle of four kids who I mean, I, I really uh, love my nieces and nephews a lot, but it's just so different. Right. Like it's it's not yeah. that hard to be a good uncle. Like you, you yes. show up, you know, you're a house a little bit and you're there for like three days. And honestly, when it's when when the girls were younger, even after three days, it was like, oh, my goodness, like <laughs> three days would exhaust me. And I was yeah. like, how do people do this for 300? Yes. <laughs> Yes, it's 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 crazy. I mean, by night, um, I used to work at night or things like that, but now I can't. I'm, at night, I'm exhausted. I'm ready to go to bed. And, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, okay. and also things takes more time. Like when you don't have you don't have kids around, like dinner, you can do it in five minutes. Uh, groceries, uh, things like that. But with kids, everything is takes more time. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, so all of this was unfolding during your time in New York, and I guess before as well. And you started this project at Columbia, and you were there for six years, which I hadn't really realized it was that amount of time. Yeah, I know. Um, well, I had uh, two years of uh, maternity leave while okay. I was in, uh, in New York. and um, Okay. So that was an important, was that, yeah. Well, was that challenging? I mean, I think something I've heard from uh, young parents is that part of the challenge is also feeling kind of disconnected. So you're spending all this time with a uh, a baby, but the baby's not going to have like an interesting conversation with you about, you know, things that you care about. I mean, it's it's very asymmetric, like understandably, but you're not kind of getting, you're not being fed socially. Mm-hmm. And in, 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 as you were saying, right, that's kind of the opposite of of the approach that we've we've talked about earlier. Where in Arizona, you're trying to, you're trying to put yourself out there as much as possible, and now your your world kind of shrinks a bit. Did you experience that as well, or was that challenging, or how did? I think to me it was the difference between my first child and the second one. Okay. I think with the first one, I didn't know what was having a a, a baby, so. Right. I was expecting to continue my my life as it right. was before, just with a baby. <laughs> so, yeah. But it, of course, it wasn't like that. Comma, just with a baby. Yeah, like, yes. uh, yeah. Everything else is the same. Every other sentence is the same. Yeah. <laughs> then with my second child, I knew what was having a baby. You so, knew what was coming. Yeah. Yes. So I was expecting to have a break of my social life, of sure. my work life and and everything. And I, I was going to have, um, I had a four months maternity leave from, from ASU. So okay. I was going to have this uh, four months for me and the, and the baby. Okay. And um, so in, with my first kid, I was more, I was very stressed. Like I was the ba- with the baby, but in my back head, I was thinking, I need to write this paper. I need to respond right. to this person. So, you know, I had all these things. That's but like it, a, such a frustrating space to be in. Yeah, it's horrible. So it, it didn't happen for the... <laughs> okay. In the second one. So before the baby was born, I was just writing emails to everybody. Mm. Also because of the second... My second child... 
I had uh, a program uh, deliver because there were issues with the pregnancy. Uh, okay. So the baby was born, I think, seven weeks earlier. So I had... Okay, that's... Then, yeah. yeah, so suddenly I need to stop everything. So I remember... Uh, yeah, emailing everybody saying, I'm sorry, but the baby is going to be born earlier than I, I thought. I'm not going to be able to finish this, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. oh. Okay. Uh, two responses. One is just uh, like a the lesson you have there about like being present. I feel like I've heard it several times, right? The importance of not distracting yourself, not letting your brain tell you like, okay, you need to do the, all these 500 other things. Because then what ends up happening, right, is I'm a firm believer in people's inability to effectively multitask, right? You kind of, mm -hmm. you end up doing things serially and less well than you could have done them if you actually just focused on any one of them. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a much less poignant example, but I used to like tell myself, oh, I should work on airplanes and buses when I'm traveling. And particularly in airplanes, I just hated it. Like, I just want to turn on the Avengers. I don't want to think about this. Yeah, I think we are lucky enough that we are working in science, and I mm -hmm. and I think you do as well. We love what we are doing, mm -hmm. but why do I need to put myself in doing it something that I love at a moment that I'm gonna hate it? So, yeah. so totally agree. That's so so well said. I, mean, I feel like some people have this relationship with exercise too, where it's like your your body would enjoy going outside if you let it. Uh -huh, but then yeah. we tell ourselves, no, I've got to do like five miles today or else like, I don't know what's going to happen. But like, it turns out like most, you know, it's nice to be outside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember in Germany, people were taking the day off in uh, during sunny days. So that's because it's that's sunny, right? Because like, yeah, because it's sunny and I want to go to the park with my family and enjoy the nice weather. Yeah. So. Well, yes. they probably also understand that like sun is a scarce commodity as opposed to like Arizona where it's like, okay, we got to hide, <laughs> hide from the sun there. Yes. So have you, did you feel a challenging thing here, right, is when you were sending people emails like, I can't do this, I can't do that. Like it's hard to flex your no muscle, right? Like we're not, we don't have always a very supportive culture for that. And I think, and frankly, some people respond pretty poorly mm -hmm. uh, to hearing no. Right. Sometimes people take it personally. It's it's uh, definitely like a interpersonal skill yeah. that I also don't know if we get a lot of mentorship in, in how to do it well. I think there is a big difference between the U.S. and Europe, how oh. um, like how people understand the, uh, the free time and the, the importance of having vacation time and family time, etc. Is that mm -hmm. what you, you were asking? Yeah, something like that. Like, how did it feel? Like, were you able to kind of navigate this process of actually telling people, like, look, I can't do this, I can't do that? And really, I mean, it's about setting boundaries, right? Yes. I mean, I never had a problem that somebody, that the person, that, yeah, that the person was not uh, understanding. Okay, it. well, that's great. But I think in general, I see there is a difference between the U.S. and, and, and Europe. I think in the U.S., people are more used to like hardworking, do not have long vacations or th things right. like that. And I think in Europe, people, you know, are they value more uh, those kind of things. I mean, I always chuckle when I send an email to um, folks in certain European countries in August. Yes. <laughs> it's just, if I get a if I get an away message at all, it's like, look, I'm not going to be here for a while, but pretty much. 
Yes. I mean, that's yes. so unbelievably foreign to us. Like. Yes. I'm now. I, I have to get used to that again because. I think I'm, you'll manage. I, <laughs> I think I will. <laughs> I think I'll I'll be fine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. So you were in New York for six years, and I, I know we didn't talk a lot about your work there, but I also don't want to miss the opportunity to talk to you about your current position and how that transition has gone. So now you're back in Spain. Um, northeastern Spain and Zaragoza. And you've, how long have you been there at the so, university? Well, since September. So, okay. so brand new. <laughs> so four or five uh, uh, months. Okay. Yeah, so and, this is a yeah. great uh, research position. I'm funded by the um, Research and Development Agency here in in Aragon, in this okay. uh, region of uh, of Spain. So it's a research position uh, to do my own research. Um, it's a permanent uh, research position. Okay. Well, congratulations again on that. That's just terrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very happy. Okay. <laughs> And so, and your husband also works at the university. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we okay. were very lucky. We both of us got a um, got a position uh, from okay. different calls, yeah, but yeah. at the same time in the same place. Okay. And so you've got multiple projects, right? I remember you talking about it was one of them in Mexico. Could you just talk to talk to us about what you're essentially up to now, social social ecologically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we had this um, case study that I was talking about before. It's a, an oasis in uh, Baja California. Okay. Um, so Alicia Tenza, which is now a postdoctoral student, she did her PhD there and she studied the sustainability of the system uh, using um, system dynamic models. Okay. Uh, so now what we are doing is that using all the information that we have from the system and, and several interviews that we may to um, create an agent-based model of the of the system. Okay. And the um, and my idea is uh, with this model um, use this model as the seed to recreate different uh, similar systems. Um, so in other like other locations. In other, in other locations. So okay. um, I'm studying um, livestock, traditional livestock uh, systems, mm-hmm. in in arid and semi-arid areas. Mm-hmm. So from that place that we really know uh, very well, especially Alicia, that she has she has spent months there. With that model, we want to go. We 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 want to go to other places to get information and introduce that information in the model. So the idea is to have. The idea is not to have a model for a particular system, Mm -hmm. for a particular case study, but to have a model for a bunch of similar uh, cases. So um, some of the cases that I'm going to study are different cases in uh, semi-arid areas in Spain, in the north of Africa, and and in Mexico. Okay, let me know when you need a research assistant from the U.S. Okay, I will. (laughs) (laughs) So could you describe, you know, is there one or a set of research questions that you're really trying to answer with these models? 
Yeah, so the idea is to see what kind of different rules uh, this uh, system are, the farmers of these systems are using, and uh, what uh, set of rules are able to sustainably manage uh, the natural resources, and how how robust they are to, for example, climate change. Okay. Do you, when you go to like a new location, you know, I've heard about this kind of participatory modeling approach. Do do farmers ever see net logo? Is it have you ever like walked a resource user through one of your models? Or would I that have, interest you if you haven't? Yeah, I haven't, but I would like to, yes. Um, hmm. because um the models that I create is based on the um, on the answer that I got from uh, farmers, but okay. they never built uh, the model with me. And I think this is something that I will, I'm, I'm very interested in, in doing in the future. And especially like sharing with them. Yeah. We have shared with them the model, but okay. uh, letting them really play with the model and see uh, yeah, yeah. consequences or, or th- things like that. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, my favorite definition of a model is like an intuition pump. So we, mm. it, it develops, yeah. <laughs> it helps us understand, you know, develop our intuition about what, you know, if you do X, what happens to Y. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't used to appreciate that, the kind of logic there, where if you really want to understand a system best, you kind of have to poke it. Mm-hmm. But yes. of course, with like complex real world systems, it can be difficult to do that in actuality. So part of my understanding of the value of models is that it lets us do that poking benignly. I, I mean, mm-hmm. would you, do you agree with that or? Yeah, yes. Okay. And another thing with the, the model that I would like to do is to understand uh, how the provision of ecosystem services uh, change uh, because of climate change or different of different rules. So okay. there are trade-offs in the provision of ecosystem services. Um like you can imagine, like conservation of uh, of uh, certain species, conservation of biodiversity, and mm-hmm. the production of meat. You can see that there is a trade-off uh, there. Um, but there are uh, ways to reduce those uh, trade-offs, but um, to really understand how those uh, trade-off dynamics work in a scenario of climate change. And you can put all that stuff in an ABM. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Okay. <laughs> Think you have different types of agents. Is that how this is all working? Yeah. So imagine I, your agents will be the the animals that are moving uh, around, uh-huh, and then uh-huh. you will have like a super agent that is super agent. Super agent uh, okay. that is telling the a, a, the the um, the animals where to go or where to move. And then, okay. and then they are moving around a landscape, and the landscape have a resource. Got it. And in the resource, you can imagine that there are uh, places where the the um, the resource is better for the animals than others. That mm-hmm. there are rocks or things like that that is not that good for the for the animals. Okay. So I remember my favorite moment actually with an agent-based model was when I was able to, I think, import like a shape file into NetLogo. I don't know if I'm making that up, but I did something very similar to that. Mm-hmm. And I was from, it was my dissertation study site. And I just nerded out so hard when I was able to create water agents 
and whose simple rule was I put a DEM in there too, or something like that, right? So like each you have the elevation values, and that you know the rule I gave each agent was just like go to the adjacent cell with the lowest value, which mm-hmm. is what water does. And then I saw like water moving through my system, like my study system. I blew me away. <laughs> I was just yeah. like so tickled. <laughs> yeah. I think it's amazing when you just start a new model and then you have your agents and you see them moving based on the rules that you wrote. Yeah. This That's amazing. <laughs> it is like kind of beautiful and magical. Yeah. yeah. So is there, that was like 10 years ago when I, when I did that, is there more of an integration between like GIS and agent-based models? Like, are there a lot of space? I mean, the models you're talking about sound quite spatially explicit, Mm-hmm. I mean, based on your research questions, it, it'd be, I feel like it'd be hard to avoid the the issue of space and geography. Mm-hmm. Like, do you use uh, like also like ArcGIS or QGIS in your work, and does it integrate with modeling, or, or are those still like fairly separate technologies? I try. So the problem with modeling and using like real data, real landscape, is like yeah. you you need very like powerful computers. And okay. And things like that. And I, what, as I was saying before, one of my interests is to create models that are something between a real case model and a theoretical model. Right. So what I want is that I want to create a landscape that can be used for different case studies. So if I yeah. import a, a map of my case study, then it will, it will be just for that uh, system. Right. And, uh, oh, so right. One, sure. Okay. Yeah. So one one uh, option that I see is that I create like a theoretical landscape, mm-hmm. or that I create very simple uh, real maps. Um. So imagine that in my case study, I separate trees, pastures, and non-productive patches. Mm-hmm. And you can do the same for other for other systems. So then you have the landscape. Uh, okay. Uh, I mean, it sounds like an intuitively responsible approach to modeling, right? I think it relates to a lot of issues that we deal with in science generally, right? The tension between specificity and generality. Mm-hmm. In statistics, you don't want to overdetermine your model so that its res- its results aren't going to be generalized to other systems. And this is discourse you know, about the importance of developing mid-range theories. So theories that basically apply to like well-specified sets of cases. I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds very analogous to that whole discourse, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Okay, so you're working on those projects. Uh, is there anything else that excites you about kind of being back in Thud work-wise? Anything I haven't kind of asked you? I mean, it's it's it really sounds just like a, a fantastic situation for you. Yeah, I think so. I'm excited, like uh, writing uh, grants, um, mm-hmm. preparing proposal, and asking what research question I want to answer. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else you want to make sure we we talk about that was on your mind? I think Thoughts that's that. Um, I think that's it. I think we okay. had a nice conversation. It was what's great talking to you, Michael. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Irene. Okay. All right. I- hope to see you. Hope to see you later this year. Hopefully in Spain. <laughs> you you bet. I'll come over soon. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Adios. Adios. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod. 
or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.